Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 6. When the Lord your God, says Moses, brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction." You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And today we are facing a question that comes up actually in a couple different places in the book of Deuteronomy, and that is the question of genocide. It's very clear in the book of Deuteronomy, if you just read it at its face value, that God has called the people of Israel to go into the land of Canaan and to destroy everyone who's there and everything that they have, except for sometimes, in some occasions, some special things that were used then for the worship of the Lord in the tabernacle. These are very, very strong words. If you look at verse... um, Oh, I just lost it. Um, You are, yes, verse 2. You must devote them to complete destruction. And this word devote is is a term that's used around the Middle East, both the ancient and the Middle East of today. Uh, Another word for it is ban. And it's it's a religious term, and it's a term that feeds a lot of religious war. And religious war that's designed to wipe out those who are not believers. So it's not just like a war of destruction in order to gain ground and gain land and gain riches. There's a a deep religious root behind it. And so God, several times in the book of Deuteronomy, as well as elsewhere in the Old Testament, commands the people of Israel to go in and destroy man woman, and child. And if you remember the story of the fall of Jericho, that, of course, is exactly what happened, except for Rahab. All of the, all of the people, at least according to the, to, the, uh, to the account that we have in Joshua, were destroyed. And that brings up the question, of course, for us in 2022 or in the 20th century or in the 21st century, how can this be? How can God command his people to go in and destroy every single man, woman, and child. And I'd like to spend some little time thinking about that today, partly because it is a real question that comes up, but partly, at least if I'm making any sense at all, we're going to get to a place that I think will be quite helpful and practical for us today. So hang in there. There are different explanations for this command. 
the one that I grew up with in a fairly traditional Reformed evangelical community was, all people are desperate sinners. The technical term for that is total depravity. You've probably heard that. All people, because they're desperate sinners, deserve death. So what happened to the Canaanites, the death that they experienced, was simply what they deserved. It's really just a question of timing. They would have died at some point later because of their sins. God says, I prefer that you die now. It's the same thing that's happening, and therefore it is just. That's the explanation that I grew up with. And some of you, I'm sure, if you have any Reformed training at all, um, have that too. I'm not very happy with that explanation, actually, to tell you the truth. If you want to know more about that, I'll tell you more later. I just, I just think it falls short in a number of ways. There's another explanation, which is kind of on the other end of the spectrum. And someone like, if you're familiar with the name of Pete Enns, will espouse a view like this. And what Pete Enns says is this. Pete Enns is an Old Testament scholar, teaches over here at Eastern University. The Israelites believed that God told them to kill the Canaanites. What we are reading is Israel looking back, and you remember we said that this book was probably written about 500 B.C. What we are reading is Israel looking back at their past and telling the story of God from their own point of view. And Israel, just like every other nation in the ancient Near East, saw God as a divine warrior. That's who God was. Therefore, they told the story of their past with that picture of God, and they, like good storytellers, invented dialogue, characters, and scenes to turn past moments into a flowing story. And the purpose of the telling of these stories wasn't to really provide accurate history. It was to speak to their current situation in the latter part of the monarchy and exile. So what Pete ends and others say is, is simply God did not tell the Israelites to destroy the Canaanites. The, the Israelites thought that God had told them to do so, and that's what they wrote down, and it fit into the culture of the time. There's nothing very historical about it at all. And in fact, in general, it's considered by scholars that this kind of wiping out of the Canaanites never really happened. There were there were incidents like Jericho, perhaps, but but even there, there's some doubt archaeologically about whether it ever really happened. So the combination of the Israelites thinking that this is what God told them to do and the fact that it probably never happened is a way to explain, uh, uh, I don't want to use explain the way in a pejorative term, but it's a way to explain this kind of a command in the Old Testament. I'm not super happy with that either, partly because I think it diminishes a little bit this idea of the revelation of God. What is the Bible? Is it really God's revelation? And to what extent can we rely on it? You know, that verse from from Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. So there has to be something in here that's more than just made up by people. Another route that's kind of in the middle and that holds the tension, which I think we have to hold, I'll quote one particular theologian I ran across, but he represents many. His name is Joel Amundsen. He said, yes, there were Israelites that came out of Egypt during the Exodus and went into Canaan. 
Yes, there was fighting and battles where people were killed. Yes, it was the will of God. Yes, the Israelites eventually settled the land. Yes, the stories about the conquest reflect historical realities. But no, they are not giving a blow-by-blow newspaper report account of just the facts accuracy. There's a lot of creativity going on in the telling of that history. And that's okay. That's how the biblical writers wrote. So what Amundsen and others are saying is there's kind of a tension here. There's a, there's a, there's a backbone of history going through it. But there's also a lot of liter- literature. There's a lot of religion. There's a lot of culture. There's a lot of way of expressing things that might not reflect exactly what was happening. Little tiny example of that. A couple of weeks ago, I was living, listening to a conservative radio talk show host, which I do once in a while. And um, he was talking about the might of the American military. And he said, the, the, the American military should be at such a state that if anyone would want to attack us, we would, and I quote, crush them like a bug. That's kind of flowery language. We all kind of know what it means. But we also know that one of the values of our culture and of Western culture and one of the values of the way that we conduct war is that we do not dehumanize people. We do not call people animals. We do not treat them like bugs that we're just going to crush. We may kill people of necessity, but we do not dehumanize that's just a little example of how kind of the, 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 the expression of the time is, is, says something to us. We, we do want to have a military that can do its work, but we don't really want to be a people that crushes and dehumanizes others like a bug. So there's this kind of thing going on in here. But I would like to um, go in a, in a, in a different direction. And I would like to uh, propose to you that we need to understand these stories, these commands, in the whole trajectory of Scripture. What is God doing in His story of working with His people from beginning to end? And how does that inform how we understand and place these kinds of stories and commands? Every proof text that you may use and every story that you may read in the Bible, however hard it may be to understand it, needs to be placed in this context of this trajectory of Scripture. And let me show you what I mean by going through a number of texts of Scripture that relate to how God and His people should look at the, quote, nations. We'll start with Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3, and I'm going to project these verses on the wall. I refer to this so often, you probably can almost say it by heart. The Lord said to Abram, this is the the beginning of the Jewish people, the beginning of, of, of Israel, the beginning of God's redemptive work through Israel in the world. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all, see the word all there? That's like every family of the earth shall be blessed. Those are the first words that God spoke to what became Israel. That's the foundational building block. And whatever you want to do with the story of Canaan and and the genocide that may or may not have happened there, somehow has to be built on that block. You can't pull that block out of it. And there's lots more I could choose from the Old Testament. I've chosen Isaiah 2, verse 4. God will judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. I don't want anybody killing anybody else. Man, woman, and child. That's not what this story is about. And then Jesus is born, and his parents take him to the temple, and they meet the prophet Simeon. Simeon took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And here it comes. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. Even those Canaanites. See this trajectory? And then the last chapter of Matthew, again, a passage that I'm sure you know fairly, pretty well. Jesus' last words in Matthew to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of whom? All nations. There is nobody that you are to exterminate anymore. Baptizing them, teaching them, etc., etc. So all through the Old Testament and all through Jesus' work, there's this, there's this view that, of the nations and that this, this story, this localized story, however, however it actually happened of extermination and genocide, is, is, a, is a little tiny piece that's got to be understood in this bigger trajectory. And, then, and this is a really powerful one. Paul in Ephesians 2, and remember Paul is is planting churches in, in the Roman Empire. And, he's in, and there's all this tension between Jews and Greeks and Romans and between tribes. And there's all this killing and there's all this genocide and all this stuff going on. And here's what Paul says. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, you could think of the Canaanites, were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at that time, in the past, back in Deuteronomy, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You had nothing to do with Israel, Deuteronomy. And strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, that story of Deuteronomy is dead. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, who were once Canaanites, who were under the ban, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, the dividing wall of hostility, that it's my, my job to kill you, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create to himself what? One new man in place of two. So making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, Jesus came, and preached what? Peace. No more killing. No more wiping anybody out. To you who are far off, to you Canaanites, and to you, and peace to those who were near. See, this whole trajectory of Scripture is just blowing up this narrative of religious war. Blowing up this narrative of us against them. Blowing up this narrative of we're some kind of special people. And you out there are not it. And in some cultures and in some times and in some places, you are so much not it that I feel a call from God to destroy you. You are my enemies, or you were my enemies. And in Christ, this whole story of Scripture is not any longer. There's no us-them anymore. So what does this say for us today? Well, it's pretty obvious that we're living in a time of partisanship is a pretty easy word for it, I guess, of tension. We're living in a time when people are looking at others, whether it be across the aisle or in some other way, saying, you know, you're probably more my enemy than my friend. You probably want to destroy more than what you actually want to put together. I'm not sure that we really can live in the same country anymore. You heard that in the news the last while? I have. I don't, know how, I don't know how concrete it is. But I'm just not sure that we're going to be able to sit down at the same table. I'm not sure we're going to be able to work together. I'm not sure this is going to work. And maybe I should separate myself from you. Maybe I shouldn't have anything to do with you anymore. I listen weekly to a podcast called The Dispatch. I highly recommend it to you, actually. It's a uh, conservative commentators, David French, Sarah Isker, Jonah Goldberg, and Stephen Hayes. Find it immediately on your, on your podcast, uh, whatever thing you use for that. But on this, um, this week's, they talked about a Gallup poll that just came out. I don't know how well you can see this, but this Gallup poll... Uh, measures American satisfaction with their personal lives and their, sa- and their satisfaction with the direction of the United States. And there's a really curious thing here. For the last 40 years, the satisfaction of Americans with their personal life has been pretty high, just on average. And their satisfaction with the direction the nation is going has gone up and down a little bit. Uh, but you could see now it's actually at 
almost an all-time low. 85% of Americans are satisfied with their personal life. And only 17%, like four times less, are satisfied with how the nation is going. And you can see that that dissatisfaction with how the nation is going would lead to conflict. Right? I'm okay. I'm going to church. I'm part of a Christian community. I have enough money to live on. I basically have everything I need. My own life is going pretty well okay. The nation is going to hell in a handbasket. And David French, when they, they, right at the beginning of the podcast, when they brought up this poll, he was the first one to make some comments on it. People living out the American dream, the richest people ever in the history of the world, and they are full of anger, full of rage. Now, none of us are saying we need to exterminate the other people or crush them like a bug. But we all know the rage and anger that's present in our society across the lines. Those people, it's them. It's not us. It's them. So what might help us move away from this us-them, enemy, rage way of looking at our society and each other? Well, there's lots in the scriptures about that, but I'd like to read with you quickly a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, some passages from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that I think would be very helpful for us. Paul, you remember, the apostle, the Jewish apostle to the Gentiles. And this is Corinth, one of these, one of these um, blue state cities, probably run by Democrats. One of these coastal cities with all kinds of this cosmopolitan population. And the church there, the city, of course, was full of tension, but the church was full of tension. Where there was us, them, all over the place. And here's what Paul says. In verse 14, he says, Therefore, my beloved, free, flee from idolatry. You remember two weeks ago, we talked about idolatry as being that we're not living quorum Deo before the face of God. It's not so much about whether you have a statue in your house or not. Are you living before the face of God. And I want to ask you this question very, very practically as you struggle with the tensions that you feel in our culture right now. Are you living before the face of God? Is that the trajectory? Is that the lens through which you understand the news that comes across your screen? And the interactions you have with people. I'm living before the face of God. And not just me. We are. And that other person is. That Democrat and that Republican. He or she, they are also living before the face of God. And idolatry is that we forget that. And that other things become more important than that. 
And then Paul goes on. And this is so practical, I, I can't, I, you could do a whole sermon on this, I'm not going to do it now, but I just want to read it through for you, and maybe you can read it yourself sometime later. All things are lawful, says Paul, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. You can do what you want with health care. You can do what you want with defense. You can do what you want with how you regulate things. The question is, is it helpful or not? All things are lawful, but, all, but not all things build up. Do what builds up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now you, of course, may think that you know what's good for your neighbor. And you may. But you might want to ask him or her. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market. Here's this question of meat offered to idols. Without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For, here's Coram Deo again. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That blue city on the west coast is the Lord's. And that red city in the flyover country is the Lord's. And Kiev is the Lord's. And Moscow is the Lord's. And Beijing is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What if that were your primary thought and perspective as you read the news? If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Be sensitive to the conscience of the other. Paul's saying, I don't care what you eat. Paul's saying, I don't care what you eat. It doesn't matter a hill of beans to me. What I'm concerned about is that you pay attention to that other person who may even be on the other side of whatever line you draw. I do not mean your conscience, he says, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, familiar verse to all of us, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. You see, the whole thrust of Paul's language to this Corinthian church with all of its partisan divides was, put that aside and seek the good of the other because we no longer live in an age where some chosen group has been commanded to wipe out another group of people. That idea is gone from the books. One of the topics that C.S. Lewis addressed in his famous book, The Four Love, Loves, was love of one's country 
and patriotism. And I thought this might be a good way to end this morning because just it sheds light on this, on this whole topic from another perspective, the great perspective of C.S. Lewis. And he talks about, when he talks about, uh, could you just wait with the, wait with the quote for just a, thank you. He talks about, um, this is in the chapter of the book called Affections, The Affections. He talks about, he talks about patriotism and he says three things about it. The first one is kind of a positive thing and the second two things are dangers. So as you, we read through these quotes, uh, put it in this perspective. Okay, thanks Rick. Let's go to the first one. First, he says, there is a love of home, of the place we grew up in or the places, perhaps many, which have been our homes and of all the places fairly near these and fairly like them. Love of old acquaintances, of familiar sights, sounds, and smells. As the family offers us the first step beyond self-love, see what he's saying? From the home, as we start off as kids, it's all about us. The family teaches us, oh, there's other people here. As the family does that, so this patriotism offers us the first step beyond family selfishness moves our our glance outward. Of course, patriotism of this kind, next quote, of course, patriotism of this kind is not in the least aggressive. It asks only to be let alone. It becomes militant only to protect what it loves. Listen to this. In my mind, in any mind which has a penny worth of imagination, it produces a good attitude towards foreigners. How can I love my home without coming to realize that other men, no less rightly, love theirs? Whether it be Mexico City, or Kiev, or Kabul, or wherever it is, they love theirs. I love mine. Why in the world would I have any amount of negative attitude toward that foreigner, that other person? That's what healthy patriotism uh, grows. The second ingredient, and this is a danger, is a particular attitude toward our country's past. And remember, C.S. Lewis lived through the Second World War in, in England which was at that time a huge power in the world. Patriotism was a big thing. The second, as well as history. The second ingredient, a danger, is a particular attitude to our country's past. I mean to that past as it lives in popular imagination, the great deeds of our ancestors. This feeling has not quite such good credentials as the sheer love of home. The actual history of every country is full of shabby and evil, even shameful doings. The historic stories, if taken to be typical, give a false impression of it and are often themselves open to serious historical criticism. I think it is possible to be strengthened by the image of the past without being either deceived or puffed up. The image becomes dangerous in the precise degree to which it is mistaken or substituted for serious and systematic historical study. How are you looking at your past? And then the third thing 
is not a sentiment, but a belief. A firm, even prosaic belief that our nation, in sober fact, has long been and still is markedly superior to all others. And he's talking about England here, of course. To be sure, this conviction had not made my friend, and I cut out a little part where I had an interaction with, with a friend, had not made my friend a villain, only an extremely lovable old ass. It can, however, produce asses that kick and bite. On the lunatic fringe, it may shade off into that popular racialism which Christianity and science equally forbid. This idea that our own nation is markedly superior to all others can lead to that popular racialism which Christianity and science equally forbid. All of that to say this. Christ broke down every barrier that exists between people. And certainly we have our differences. And certainly we think differently. And certainly some of the things we think are not even right. And certainly some of the facts upon which we build our our beliefs and our actions are not even correct. But just as Christ built a bridge to us, so we build bridges to each other. And we call no one the enemy. And we cancel no one. And we wipe no one off of our book of people that we want to talk with anymore. And there's no one who we want to crush like a bug. Because we are people made in the image of God. And the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And through Abraham promised God so many years ago that every family of the earth will be blessed. And if that's the case, why in the world would any of us or any of us individually or as a group, cut anyone off. And I see in here an absolute spectacular motivation to move towards the other. And in all the little ways that we have in our power to really change things. You may not change the national discourse at this point, but we really can change things and make a difference and not live in the destruction in which we're finding ourselves right now.